Welcome back to the Heart Podcast, everyone. This is episode four of season two, and today Milagros and I will focus on anti-racist teaching through theater. Our conversation will take us on a journey of demonstrating the power of visual expression, which presents an opportunity to provide a global vision in which a reimagining of society can take place. Join us as we delve into theater history and touch on contemporary anti-racist issues. Thank you, Omar. On today's episode, we have two very talented guests from the field of theater. With us is Michael Bradford, who is Vice Provost for Faculty, Staff, and Student Development at the University of Connecticut. Michael is also Professor of Dramatic Arts here. He teaches theater history, dramatic literature, and playwriting. His full-length and one-act plays have been produced at various venues in New York, including Off-Broadway at the American Place Theater, the Lark Play Developmental Center, and the Ensemble Studio Theater. His work has also premiered internationally. In 2013, his play, Olives and Blood, was translated into Spanish for a stage reading in the Federico Garcia Salon at the Centro Cultural Dulce Maria Loinas in Havana, Cuba. Internationally, he is the recipient of the Research Scholar Fulbright to Granada, Spain and he has led writing workshops at Teatro Oficina in Portugal and the University of Theater in Romania. Alongside Michael, we're also joined by Dr. Christine Mock, who is an assistant professor of English at the University of Rhode Island. Dr. Mock is a dramaturg, designer, and scholar. Her work in scholarship and practice focuses on the people, places, and performances where the limits of representation rub up against the limits of racial representation. In addition to teaching, Dr. Mock has also published in the Journal of Asian American Studies, Theater Survey, Modern Drama, and PAJ, a performing arts journal. She is also a member of Wingspace Theatrical Design. We really look forward to our conversation. Welcome, Michael and Dr. Mock. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Again, welcome Michael and Dr. Mock. We're excited to learn beside you today. And we're really going to be focusing most of our conversation on anti-racist teaching through the teaching of theater. Um, but before we go there, I'm wondering if we could begin our conversation by hearing about the approach you take as artists. How do you see anti-racist tenets or aspects of anti-racism embedded within the approach that you take in theater as a form of art? Michael, would you be willing to get us started in this conversation? Sure, I really appreciate that question, uh, Milagros. Um, I, I will say that it's, my life experience is connected to what I'm curious about and what I want to explore and deconstruct and so what is the history of my people you know in this country what is our history within our communities what is our history and relationship between our communities and, and other communities out outside of us um, and then in a larger scope what is the relationship between you know people who have come away and are trying to figure out how they realize their best selves and so you know my, my own work is as a playwright is certainly focused on trying to deconstruct some of those tropes, you know, that we have about um, Black men in particular, but certainly folks in the Black community, um, 
And if we take a deeper dive underneath the surface, what are those conversations and how do we how do we understand understand ourselves better? I want to understand myself better. I want to understand my history better. And so I'm not really thinking intentionally how I'm operating in um in an anti-racist way or um, or any other kind of way. I'm really just thinking selfishly, quite honestly, about how I explore my own identity, how I explore my own history, how I how I understand my my family and their history. Um, my my grandmother, when she was alive, would often call and say, "What what are you working on?" And we'd have a conversation about our own family at some point in time, right? And I would learn something new about about who we are. And so, I think that that's just that's just the work that I do because that's what I'm concerned about, and that's that's what I'm curious about. Um, you know, I have one play about Federico Garcia Lorca, the Spanish poet and and playwright, um, and writing a triptych now about his particular life and assassination. Because I'm I'm curious about how, you know, the artist of another community who finds themselves, you know, because of being gendered in a certain kind of way or defined in a certain kind of way, is is trying to navigate the world that they live in, um, what they lose when they're not being who they want to be in the space or can be in the space, all of, all of those things. So, um, I don't want to go on and on, but that's that's basically my approach as an artist and what I'm concerned about. Yeah, I appreciate that, Michael, because it sounds like so much of your own journey, your own identity and your reflection on that and your own histories informs, you know, what you want to focus on and shedding light on through your work in theater. And it sounds really personal. And at the same time, theater work is so public. So it's this <laughs> nice intersection between the personal and, and the public. You know, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'll just say really quickly, one of the, the best writing idioms I've ever heard is that it is the personal that is universal, right? The more specific you are, the more universal the the connection with, with people versus the more general, right? And so, yes, it is intentionally personal, but hopefully it's reaching an audience because what is personal is at the core of who we are as human beings. So. I love that. Thank you so much. Dr. Mock, wondering if you have um, you know, thoughts on how you see anti-racist tenants as part of the way you approach your art in, in the field of theater. I wear two hats um, in terms of my own uh, theater practice. Um, I'm a designer, a costume designer, uh, and I'm also a dramaturg. And I see it, uh, there's a way in which um, as a costume designer, I'm I'm often approached um, to design the characters for worlds by um, writers of color. Um, and I, I am often approached, a lot of my projects, uh, people approach me as a costume designer because there's like a question or a problem. Um, or a, one way to say is I've been tasked with shows that often have um, more like, the, I don't, I don't know why, but statistically, I've been often asked to work on shows that have had um, dead indigenous characters in it. Um, and it's always this, this question of what do, you, what do you, how do you approach it? How do you embody it? How do you represent it on stage? And I think this is really connected to how I see my dramaturgy work being connected with anti-racist tenets, which is that, um, you know, a play is a world. Um, and so at the, it is a world and oftentimes when you look at a script you're like oh this is just dialogue these are people but because what you're bringing 
bringing onto the stage uh, is a world, what ends up happening is that you're, you're really sort of thinking not just about the interpersonal, but you're, you're talking about the structural, the systematic, the, the um, that if one of the things when we talk about anti-racist um, tenants or critical race theory is to sort of think about racial formation, that I think that theater is sort of the perfect place for us to think about the formation part of it, um, the production part of it, uh, because there is a way in which what happens on stage is this world that gets peopled, um, that gets um, then uh, you sort of have a kind of every play is its own sort of microcosm of society um, that both is like our world, but also is not, that mirrors things about our world, but also makes it possible for us to imagine something different. Um, and so I think that both when I sit down as a dramaturg working with playwrights and directors, I'm really sort of, um, I'm often being tasked to think about the structural, to think about formation, to think about that sort of big picture. And when I'm working as a costume designer, I'm sort of within it, asking questions from within that are very specific to things about character, things about um, individuals, um, that are things about um, stereotypes, um, the ways in which we read people, read clothing, read character. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly working in between these two poles, um, but that I do see these anti-racist tenets coming through in part because um, as a, uh, designer of color, as a dramaturg of color, um, I end up being um, asked to work on certain pieces or uh, my collaborators who reach out or, you know, theaters who reach out. I've certainly been asked um, as a dramaturg to come in uh, when there are casting controversies, which is actually quite often the case when it comes to um, Asian American representation on stage. I mean, this is actually like there are, are multiple modes of racial impersonation that happens and is, is part of the long history of theater. Um, but, you know, uh, there's like a yellow face emergency and uh, I get people reach out. Um, and so I think that that it embodies um, the, the anti-racist tenants really sort of are undergirded in a lot of my work, but they're also there even in the sort of structural space in which people reach out to me, how it is that people reach out to me. Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, to the both of you. Dr. Mock, there, there were a couple nuggets in your response that, that stuck out to me that I can relate to my two years in graduate school, specifically this year, just being in person and how uh the professors that i have the honor of of uh, learning from they they are very intentional about in encouraging us as students to think uh or reimagining something different um in terms of society and how we come into spaces and just thinking about our our places change agents and being the next generation of scholars and activists um artists and I'm I'm wondering, you know, the both of you have a very rich experience and there's also like a huge sense of responsibility that, that it seems like that you bring into these spaces in uh, Dr. Mock, as you mentioned, performance as being a, a microcosm of, of society. Um, really love that phrasing. And I'm just curious to know what what is as as instructors, as teachers, what does that what does that look like actually teaching teaching students that perhaps don't have that same mentality, maybe just that same experience, that same level of experience 
and really uh, perhaps in a way kind of instilling this sense of, of responsibility on what it really means to take microcosms of society on stage because in, in similar similar to perhaps this isn't the, the the best comparison to it but it's it's performances are brief moments in in life and in time where people are just forced to sit down and soak in exactly what it is that's in front of them and that's one has to be very intentional in that process and so how i'm curious to know how do you how does that both look like when you're teaching these principles these tenets uh to your students and i'm curious uh michael could you start us with that question please yeah there's a there's a whole universe right encompassed in that that particular in that particular question and it you know whether you're sitting in the classroom or whether you're in the theatrical space i would say that most Traditional public university theater programs really center on the Western canon. And so that each time you step into the space, you are automatically in somewhat of a friction between what the traditional modalities have been for that particular course. And it doesn't matter, you know, the diversity of the classroom. There's there's probably even a baseline expectation of folks when they come into the room about, you know, where you're going to center that conversation. And so um, what that presents, though, is, a, is an opportunity, right? It presents an opportunity to expand the global vision and the understanding of the quote unquote other, you know, by everybody in that particular space. And I would say even more so in the performative space, you know, as a director in the in the rehearsal space, depending on what the play is, whether the play is, you know, written by Albie and he wasn't thinking about anybody of color in that particular play. You know, there is an understanding that on the dramaturgical level, certainly as well, right? That there, there's a whole world within which that play exists. There's the microcosm of that piece on the stage, but there is a world outside of that within which that play exists that is actually impinging upon how those characters are dealing with each other. And what does that world look like? And why does that world look like that? We'll take a play like um, Intimate Apparel by by Lynn Nottage, where this uh, seamstress is navigating all the different layers of New York City you know, in 1930. So it's the Jewish uh, fabric, um, you know, of seller or the, the the very rich woman on the, you know, upside of, uh, of town in, in New York. What is the different relationships and how do we understand how that one person is navigating all of those spaces, not just in the intimacy of the moment of the scene, but also driven by the outside forces, right? That are, that are pushing because half, you know, half of what these characters are, are working with is, is figuring out how they're operating on the social level as well and how that affects how they operate through their day. So it's 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 an opportunity even to expand in the classroom. Let's say we, we're thinking about theater history, which for in the Western canon begins in 536, you know, BC with, with the Greeks. But you know, if we if we drop the other 2000 years of Sub-Saharan Africa and um, Saharan Africa and uh, the Indian theater and Aryan theater, you know, we have not dealt with the underpinnings of the theater that makes its way, you know, into where the Greeks began, right? Um, we have just made an arbitrary beginning that doesn't have any bearing on the reality of this particular craft that we're trying to make these students understand has, you know, three, 4,000 years of history in order to, in order to lean upon, right? We say theater begins in the ritual, but you, you know, where, where does that ritual theater actually begin? Well, in the true ritual in the African village, sub-Saharan village, right? So it's an opportunity to expand, culturally expand, globally expand, kind of the understanding of, of how we got to where we are in this, in this particular 
craft. And I think it's sometimes surprising, but it affect it should affect everything we do. And just because you have Latinx theater or or, or course on Latinx theater or course on African-American theater or Asian theater, just because you have that course, it does not negate the fact that all of your coursework needs to encompass the world, right? That has an effect and has um, um, some information to provide to, to, to understand the context of how, to, how we got to where we are. And then we're not leaving people out of the conversation. You could be sitting in that class and be left out of the conversation and think you are just, um, you're a Johnny come lately, you know, into that particular conversation when really you are at the center, you know, of that, of that conversation. Since Michael did bring up the Greeks, I will sort of start with this point and sort of get, get to where um, I talk about um, anti-racist pedagogies in my teaching or in my classroom, which is that, um, the word drama etymologically comes from the Greek word drawn, which means to do. Um, this is like action is, is there from the get-go. Um, and one of the ways in which we, um, in performance studies, like come to define to perform, right? Um, uh, what is a performance? And that is uh, twice behaved behavior or restored behavior, um, that uh, there are these loops, right? And that with the, and I think when you sort of think both theater and performance studies together is what you recognize or you realize is that with every repetition is the possibility for something different to happen. Sure, there are these repetitions that sort of keep instantiating things, keep instantiating, I don't know, racist stereotypes or keep instantiating white supremacy, but with every repetition is the possibility that something else will happen. I mean, part of what, you know, um, uh, you know, one of the things that like everybody who like loves theater, what you love is that this is a live art that occurs in the moment, right? And that um, when you walk into the theater and you sit down and you see a show, um, for me at least, there is this incredibly optimistic moment in which like the curtain is like about to, you know, separate where it's like something could happen, anything could happen, right? My entire world could be changed. Um, because I want to go back to the quote that you pulled uh, from me about whether or not about theater as a microcosm of society. Um, what I said is it both is and it isn't because every play world is its own world um, and that there are things about it that seem to mirror ours or might be like ours, but that in many ways what I ask my students to do from the get go. Um, and I'm building off of this essay, which is called EF's Visit to a Small Planet, some questions to ask a play is that you have to let go of your assumptions about your own world and your own society when you walk when you step into a play because if you sort of hold those and you approach an art object um you're actually you're going to be bringing all those assumptions in and i think that there is always this possibility in which um the art object your experience with an art object will reshape you i mean this is this is where you know this this is really i think where the kind of sort of both aesthetic and political and potential for any art comes comes about in that interaction, right? I will begin this by saying I um, my my two tenure line positions have been in English departments. Um, and so even sort of the disciplinary structures around what that means and what it means for me to teach theater within that and the kinds of assumptions that are there um, are, are different from if I were in a um, BA in theater or a BFA in theater. Um, but at both of my previous uh, 
my current institution, previous institution, have theater departments that have our, our um, conservatory BFA models. Um, and, and I do think that um, there are these assumptions that, that Michael brings up about the Western canon, that that is what theater and theater studies are. Um, and so I had this really extraordinary um, undergrad who uh, a few years ago found me at URI. Um, and she found me because um, she was really tired of, um, she, like, she was like, there must be something else. <laughs> there must be plays that are written uh, about people who look like me, and maybe there's a history of that. Um, and she started asking questions, and she started asking questions and um, got a little bit louder and a little bit louder and came to my office hours. And in the midst of her asking questions, um, uh, several deans at URI noticed, and in particular the dean of the libraries, who um, gave her quite a lot of money and we created a collection. We like sat down with several of her um, peers, other um, you know, theater students of color who felt that they were not um, getting the education they, um, they needed, weren't getting the kind of training that they needed. Um, and they really sort of um, sat, they like, we created the dream list of like works because I was like, it's out there. These plays have been written. Um, books have been written about like theater practice. You can have, there's an entire theater history. There are theater histories. It just happens that the one that you have been given that has like a capital T and a capital H is one that, um, you know, uh, privileges um, this sort of uh, Western civilization model that begins with you know, Greek tragedy and, and sort of continues to make ascendant the very sort of projects of enlightenment empire. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that there's ways in which um, a lot of this, and I'm sure, I don't know if this is the direction we want to go in, you know, obviously this has to do with things like um, rethinking the curriculum, um, things like hiring practices um, and, and, uh, and, and hiring practices, not just like hiring one junior faculty of color who can like, as if that'll change everything, right? Um, but I've also seen these kinds of changes happen in terms of, especially in theater departments that do um, season programming, the kinds of plays that are being produced and therefore the kinds of plays that are being produced and how that then is connected to things like who is auditioning for these shows, who is directing these shows. Um, I'm also seeing it in terms of the, you know, no more 10 out of 12s. Um, movement that has really been going on the um, uh, uh, in theater during tech um, we have these um, schedule is structured so that you do 10 out of 12 a 12 hour day uh, and the actors get 10 hours um, everybody else gets more than that um, but the ways in which that sort of really puts a pressure on who can afford to do a 10 out of 12 who can afford to commit that kind of time um, as well as like creating the certain kinds of like toxic environments that privilege those um, who for whom like theater making uh, is doesn't have to be like you don't have to you don't have to make a living out of it, uh, which is sort of like moving us in a, in a in a another direction. But just to sort of bring us back to like um, anti-racist teaching um, within my own classroom is, I think for like a little over a decade now, um, it might be longer. Uh, I've been teaching this class um, on race and performance. Um, and one of the things that we really sort of 
um, set out to do is is uh, it's like it, it's sort of like um, it's kind of a baby CRT class, but we do it through uh, plays and through plays by writers of color. And so for a lot of for 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 that entire time period, students are always sort of ex like they're they're astonished at the sort of like panoply of of works. And sometimes the work that you're doing um, is both like to teach students about um, race and racism, to uh, find models to disrupt rather than perpetuate white supremacy. But sometimes it just is about you know giving students what like Viet Nguyen in in literature calls narrative plenitude. Um, because oftentimes there are like, you're like the only one in a theater department, or there are only one story, um, that there are these like stereotypes or these narratives that you're, that, that sort of keep getting repeated over, stamped over and over again. And that, um, you know, students are demanding, um, more representation, more stories. And, you know, there are artists out there who are doing that. And so I think part of the, the work in my own classroom is is both about you know giving students um, the origins and 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 histories of like past and present racism and because I, I work in theater and performance a lot of it is about you know um, the history of blackface yellowface histories of minstrelsy histories of racial impersonation um, the kinds of structural issues so you know it was. Um, it was really interesting that when uh, we moved remotely and to what it meant to teach theater when we couldn't gather in the theater, but that um, at that time, um, uh, and I think that we're seeing the kinds of changes that are coming out of that. And I mentioned no, to, no more 10 out of 12s, but you know, the other big thing that happened in the theater industry was we see you white American theater, um, the kinds of demands um, that came out of it. And then the kinds of re responses that artistic uh, directors either are or not making in response to that. And I think that when students see that this is like both like what happens in the classroom, but that this is all happening outside, I think this is how like the anti-racist teaching that might be within a classroom walls is actually like rippling out, like it is outside. It is shaping um, the theater that they will either, part they will enter into, participate in, and then make. That was so rich. I just wanted to say I love this idea about what we what we bring into the space if we don't surrender it, um, in order to make the work that we that we want to make. I, I love the work of Guillermo Gomez Pena, performance artist, um, who was actually here at UConn. Not uh, well, it was quite a while ago. I was going to say not too long ago, but I got a lot of gray in my head. He was here quite a while ago, um, but he he began this group called Pocha Nostra on the idea of radical um, equality. Um, but the group fell apart and he has a wonderful quote, which I will probably butcher, which is that the, the seed of our destruction is at the center of all of our utopian ideas, which is to say that if we're not really intentional about doing the work before we try to bring this group together, it's not just a sentiment of equality that will, will allow us to that will allow us to survive because everything that 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 is our baggage, you know, we, we brought into that center with us sooner or later, it would rear, it will rear its head. Um, and I think that every opportunity to start a rehearsal, every time we go into the room of the new time, it's just the, it's the beginning of this birthing process, you know, of a new world that we want to create. And I have to say, um, each time I've stepped in the space as a director, I'm always fascinated by the opportunity it presents 
to have a conversation with students about how we expand their worldview, how we expand their understanding of racism, how we expand their understanding of privilege, how we understand the, 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 how we present to them a history, right? That as Susan Laurie Park, Susan Laurie Park says, is, is the possibility of repetition and revision, but has really just been repetition, right? And there's not been a lot of revision. And so even as we're in the, the, the making of that piece of theater, how do we begin to think about what that revision is? Right in the in the in the world that we are trying to create at that moment, which is an intentional way of saying I need to surrender some of the things that I brought in, some of my understanding, or total lack of understanding, or just total lack of thought about the world that we are trying that we are trying to create. I I'm always somewhat surprised and absolutely fascinated by the opportunity that 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 this process presents to itself and the way of understanding who we are. We talk a lot about. You know how the art of theater um, for actors, designers, directors, writers help us reimagine, re-understand, re-educate ourselves about who we are. And the more internal that we can 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 understand ourselves, the more truthful we can be in the process of the work that we are that, that we are doing. Um, and so, for those who are ready to engage in that conversation with themselves in that space and have opened up space because they've let some things go, they've surrendered some some things. It's a it's an evolution that you that you see in the in the in the theater space, right? When that actor understands that moment for that character, or you're tearing apart or deconstructing a piece of, of literature, you know, in the classroom, whether it's um, you know, Mary Baraki or whoever the case may be, the Dutchman, which is not the easiest play, you know, to understand. Um, but but when we get along, get beyond the tropes of that story, we get beyond the, the the white black paradigm of that particular story, and we break it down to where human beings are interacting with each other, but they're still being affected by the history that they bring into that train, that they bring into that space. You know, we just have a much deeper a much deeper conversation, and so I think that's why I love theater, and I think that's why I love the I love the classroom. Every year, I'm learning how to decolonize my own brain. Right, so that I can let some things go, so I can have a better conversation about how we got, you know, to to a particular moment. So I, I just want to say, Dr. Mike, there was a lot, there was a lot in that. It was really rich, and I, I so I so appreciate it. Yeah, I think that something that I've been seeing, like in particular, in the last like two years, and I think this is sort of like the gift of like you know teaching over time, and particularly if you like have like a. a the courses that you develop and that you develop across time and you know you think of you know for me each class the students are an ensemble right and and a lot of the work is like how they you know what is it they they bring to the material what is it that they want out of the material but this last semester or, or the last time i taught this class was in the spring um and i actually taught it um face to face um in person though at no at no point did i ever have all 25 students in front of me um because students kept quarantining or being sick and you know so we'd have like a zoom running simultaneously but uh that class um I, i've been seeing a lot of the students like clamoring for more and more um tools for action actually um and i think that that is um uh, for me that's like that's where it's all like paying off right like it's one thing to sort of um be like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna uh teach you these modes that help to denaturalize things that have been naturalized to dismantle certain structures that seem monolithic right um and it's been really wonderful to see students like asking for more and doing different and and um in particular um this spring 
uh, group uh, cohort, uh, they were really like invested in both like learning about and putting into action like bystander training. And I think that that is like um, one of the ways in which, uh, you know, there there's this incredible, to go back to where we sort of began um, with uh, Omar's question, um, the kind of reflexiveness that theater and performance allows for us to do, and, and it's, you know, um, uh, special, funny um, relationship with the real world and real life. And the closest that I think that I can come to it is like, it's very Augusto Boalian in the sense that this is like the rehearsal for the revolution, right? That this is, that they take, take to heart like um, performance and theater as rehearsals um, and as like ways of, of sort of rehearsing and putting into their bodies the possibility for the world that they might want. That's really interesting because you all have raised, well, first of all, had I known you were going to say this many things, I would have booked two hours and now I will never see theater again the same way. But I'm really grateful for the ways in which you are raising just such critical points and perspectives about theater and this idea that there's this continuous friction, right, because there's this traditional Western canon, and if you want to do anti-racist teaching in theater, you have to continuously be pushing against that canon and centering more possibilities within theater. And at the same time, for yourselves and for your students, identifying ways of surrendering yourself to what's possible, and at the same time, potentially identifying tools for how you create action inside of theater. That's a lot of work um, in anti-racist teaching in theater. And I'm curious about, especially what you both have mentioned about this traditional canon and Dr. Mock about your students kind of being hungry for other possibilities, right? How did you all come to teach this way? I'm curious about what was your educational journey or what, what in your pathway, in your work in, in, in theater, led you to be teaching the way that you do? And maybe I can um, ask uh, Dr. Mock to get started. The first um, theater class I ever took was in, um, well, you know, I was interested in theater and as a kid, you acted in things. Um, uh, but uh, the first sort of uh, class that I ever took um, I guess the more scholarly approach to it um, was an undergrad. And that first class was actually an Asian theater class that was taught to me um, by one of my mentors, Framji Minwala. Um, and that that's sort of where I went. So there's a way in which my trajectory sort of both like only landed by the time I went and did my MFA at Yale School of Drama, which I think is now called the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale, um, that that there's a way in which I didn't make it to the the canon of Western theater until sort of later in the game. And I think that that, um, although I will say that the dramaturgy department, at least when I was there, when you're accepted into the program, they send you this like fat, like giant list of plays, plays you should know. And uh, there were all these plays on it that I didn't know at all. And I was like, what? Spain had a golden age? I didn't learn anything about the Spanish golden age. Um, and and so I think that there's um, there are ways in which, uh, like, 
I think that my entry point was a little bit idiosyncratic. Um, and then I also think that I sort of, um, um, even in undergrad, I was I was kind of like bullied into becoming a theater major because Mindy Kaling took me out for hamburgers. Um, and so I think that there are these idiosyncratic ways in which you can enter into the theater, but it's only looking back that I realized that there were these things that sort of these, these more sort of structural things that an anti, like my own sort of anti-racist intersectional thinking did not realize, you know? So, um, uh, like on the one hand, um, I'm like trained as an Asian Americanist and in ethnic studies, but I also am trained in theater studies. And there were there were these ways in which these two things, like like in terms of my education, were actually at cross purposes. And so that when I sat down as a professor for the first time, I ever got to teach my own like class of my own devising, and this was like the most earliest version of performing race. Is I really sat down and I was like, okay, so. Um, what did I both learn and what was I not taught? Um, and, and I actually gave a, 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 like a plenary that was based upon this that um, is like um, at the East of California caucus. Um, this is an, a caucus in Asian American, the Association for Asian American Studies. And, and you can think Asian American studies in terms of like as a field, as a department, um, as like institutions that have departments of Asian American studies often are like in California. And then there's the rest of us who are all like the only ones and then we're all east of California but it was at this caucus and it was based on what Clark University does this thing called talking syllabus in which they have a professor sort of talk through their syllabus but also talk about the history of like the course and how they devised it the things that worked, the things that didn't work and I think for me I realized that it was like it was an opportunity uh, for me to both like pay homage to that, um, what only now I see as idiosyncratic, but in reality was such an amazingly rich um, theater-like uh, um, uh, education that I got um, in part because of Framji Manwala, so that it was steeped in Asian, classical Asian theater, contemporary Asian theater, queer theater, like queer theory, like that these were things that like if I had just sort of landed in a BA in theater might not have been what I did. And so to, to like when it came time for me to like check off the boxes of the required classes, I just sort of did them all in one fell swoop my senior year rather than, and so the door felt very open for me. And so when it came time for me to sort of um, make my own classes, it was like, oh, if there were these moments in which my training in ethnic studies and Asian American studies and theater studies have been at cross purposes, this is a moment for me to sort of really put them together, to sort of really foreground the ways in which I am, I see how uh, anti-racist, anti-racism, critical race theory, ethnic studies is like, is, is, and, and it is there, it is there in, in theater. I mean, I think that, um, there's a way in which, yes, there, there was this sort of disconnect, but my own sort of move through it, um, uh, although maybe that's like the most sanitized version, my own move through it was able to sort of like to, to um, come out the other end and be able to like synthesize. Um, but that's not to say that there weren't these moments of real, real extreme um, friction, um, though I think it wasn't necessarily disciplinary for me. I, I think for me it was like, oh, what is it like to be a student of color navigating, say, the Ivy League or na navigating any prestigious privileged space, whether it be a theater space or a university space?
Wow. Well, I, I, I will try to be brief and I, I will say that um, I suspect it's a little bit non-traditional. And I, at the end of the day, I really came to the, to what I wanted to focus on in the classroom because of what I did not see in the classroom based on my own, own experience. And so I did not come to theater in a traditional way. I was in my mid twenties. I saw August Wilson, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and thought this is really all that I wanna do. I was in the military. Um, came to UConn and focused really on on English lit, you know, in my in my early 30s. Um, didn't focus on theater at all. I just thought I'd write plays on the weekend and be a happy, happy camper. Um, but but went on to graduate school and the playwriting program was in the English department. So even then there was not a lot of conversation about theater, critical theory, or performative theory, or the history of theater, or really not much at all. It was really a focus on on, on the writing, but my introduction into professional theater was through some icons in black theater. So first of all, the Negro Ensemble Company, you know, um, introduced themselves to, to me graciously and I was able to, to do some work with them. And so, and Woody King at the New Federalist Theater, both icons in the black art movement um, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, so, so I was kind of entrenched in what that world was and had an expectation that you know, this is just part and parcel of, of the world of of the world of theater. And so UConn was nice enough to, you know, call and, you know, say, here's here's a gig and, um, you know, coming in to th teach theater history and, and maybe some uh, dramatic lit courses. I didn't see myself. I didn't see that history represented. Right. And so I'm teaching the canon and I'm wondering where where where, where do I show up in the in the in the canon. Right. So that began my own my own investigation about what what is that actual history i'm like i'm teaching theater history but i'm not really completely clear myself on what all of that history is or what the relationships are between these historical moments and what drives what you know into that next moment so i would say it took me a few years actually here at the university to come to some understanding that i'm i'm, I'm teaching half of an idea i'm teaching half of a of a moment i'm teaching half of a history and so so how do i buckle in take a few steps back to figure out what are the steps forward that I need to that I need to take next, and so for for me coming to what it is that that I want to teach, that I want to focus on, um, was was really through that particular process of having been engaged in it as an artist, you know, in 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 a place where that's part and parcel of the way people the way people think, um, and to this day still connected with the Negro Ensemble Company and and Woody King, God bless them, God bless them both, so. I think it's not as it's not a complicated thing for me to simply say, this is my experience. This is where I'm centered, and my experience is part of the larger experience. And if the students are coming through, and I am not relating that to them, that their experience is part of the larger experience as well, then they're only getting half of the story. I've had that situation where you know a young black man has come to me to say. Um, I, I don't know my place. I don't know the plays about me. You know, where's where's the list? You know, here, here's the list and let's not wait for somebody to say it's okay for you to perform this. Let's just figure out how to put it up in your own in your own space, because it's it's an experience that you that you need to have. It will reconnect you to the reason why you are here to do this work. Um, but I also want to say that it's not just, you know, how we navigate this journey ourselves and, and how intentional we are and how we are bringing students into that conversation, the faculty. The faculty that we work with, the folks who are in that department with us, you know, have to navigate this experience with us. We have to bring them into that conversation. Something as simple as here's the audition process. You know, do your Shakespeare monologue, 
put your, do your musical theater piece, do a, a contemporary piece, and then go your merry way. To, to, to make that acting faculty understand that you are leaving half of the folks who come in the door out of the conversation. You are telling them what is important to you and where they're centered, and they have to negate a part of themselves. I have always thought this, an actor once said to me, how much black do I pack to do Macbeth? And I thought that's one of the most profound things I have ever heard, right? Because I know you're a black man on that stage. I'm seeing you, I'm looking at you, but you are negating a part of yourself because the audience knows historically who that person, you know, what that person looks like, where that person's coming from. And so you're negating a part of your blackness in order so that you don't put that front and center and the, the audience feels this, this somewhat disconnect. Or maybe they don't, but they probably do. And I think that that was one of the most profound things I had ever heard. So to the acting faculty, are you making folks negate themselves in order to come into a program where they're going to spend four years and then go out into the world and they're not really connected to the work that is most connected to them? We want to expand, right? We want to do Williams. We want to do whoever we want to do. We want to do Shepard. We want to do that. We also want to do Ed Bullens. Right. We also want to do UB Blake. Right. We want to step into our space and figure out how I understand myself because that's just as big a mystery to us as as anybody else. Right. I'm a biggest. I'm a mystery to myself to some degree in my own history. I wanted to explore that, to deconstruct that, to put that back together, to understand myself better. Which is not to say these other plays are not for me as well, but we have to really think also about how we bring faculty into that particular conversation. And it took a couple of years for me to get the acting faculty to understand that you are negating the experience of half of the people that come to audition for you, right? You have to open up the space for those individuals when they come in the door in the door as well. So my journey is a little bit different because I kind of come to it outside of outside of academe. Um, and then when I got to academe thought, where where am I? I'm not I'm not here. So Wow, thank you both so much for for the richness of your responses, and it I, I think it just digs into the the richness of our of our complexities as human beings, and how like you know the the four of us are virtually sitting here together, you know, but um, there's an abundance of reasons and people and experiences that have led us to and the both of you to to where you are and teach the way that you do. Um, and and on that wavelength, I'm just curious for you know members of the audience that are themselves on different trajectories, um, what advice would you give to others who want to engage in anti-racist teaching through the art of theater or the teaching of it, perhaps something that you wish you would have known um, at some point in your uh, educational or professional trajectory, or perhaps a piece of advice that a mentor shared with you that completely, uh, not maybe not completely, but just caused you to pivot or just uh, approach your work in a in a different way. Um, yeah, just curious, curious what advice you might have for for our audience. And um, Dr. Mock, do you, do you mind kicking us off with that question, please? Yeah, I think that my response is probably going to be a contrary one, a little bit contrary one, which is that you know window dressing is not enough. Um, there is this. Uh, there's a way in which, you know, to diversify your curriculum or like just your syllabus, that's only like one step. But even then, what ends up being, uh, it's sort of like the difference, that, uh, the difference that makes no difference. Um, 
that uh, if you're not actually spending the time to sort of think deeply through um, your assignments, um, through uh, even the sort of exercises you do in class, um, when Michael brings up the sort of, uh, there's a way in which the, the presumed audition structure of like the classical, the contemporary or the musical theater, um, like a song, et cetera, like, you know, there's, there are these structures that are givens, and if there's anything that anti-racist teaching asks us to really think about, it's actually the ways in which those structures, those pillars, uphold certain kinds of um, uh, supremacies, um, certain kinds of, uh, yeah, that like, what gets excluded out of that. And so if, if you know, in terms of anti-racist teaching, it is a journey. Um, and certainly one of the first steps is to like literally look at your syllabus and be like, okay, who am, whose voices am, am I um, upholding and whose voices am I not even like hearing, right? But that uh, it becomes a little bit too easy to be like, oh, well, I'll just put in one like black play, one Latinx play, one Asian American play, right? And I'm, I'm actually just going to participate in tokenization, which I think is like, that's, that's like, that's not enough. Um, that being said, uh, there is a way in which I think um, uh, even structurally, and this is something that Michael bring, brought up in terms of, okay, so if theater history, you know, uh, gets to be like all of the Western Civ, and yes, you have these electives that you could take in Asian American theater, in Asian theater, this, right? Um, that that keeps the sort of minor major, like that keeps that sort of, that um, uh, like privileging of one over the other, that, that keeps it going. And then in many ways, what anti-racist teaching is asking us to do is really just sort of dismantle the very structures that, that are there, right? Um, and uh, Michael mentioned Susan Laurie Parks, and I, I do think that in that essay, forget if it's in elements of style or, or in possession, where she, she basically is like, oh no, it's not about just, just like, um, flipping the binary, you're actually going to have to redo the entire system. And, and, um, and I think that that is really kind of daunting, but it's something that we all sort of do like um, little bit by little bit. Um, I mean, one of the things that I love about teaching and one of the things that I love about in-person teaching, which I think is like connected to theater and rehearsal and this, is that uh, you keep coming, it's about the iterative process. It's about coming back coming back into the classroom, coming back into the rehearsal room. It's about coming back and what didn't work out that last time, you can you can figure it out again. And if it doesn't work out that time, you keep coming back at it. And I think maybe that is the thing in terms of anti-racist teaching is that it is like, you're gonna have to, it is a process and you keep coming back at it. I, I am absolutely agreement. I think it's a poco and poco kind of a process because even my own evolution has been that kind of a process, which is I don't see myself represented. Um, how do I make sure that I'm that my story is represented? Uh, how do I make sure your story is is represented? But that's a kind of a siloed uh, process, right? That kind of exists only in the space that you're operating in at that moment. It took me a few years to understand that unless there's a, a systemic change in the department, right? And that really calls for a sea change in the mind, right? Of your of your colleagues, right? And that is no 
that is no small feat. You know, I was department head for dramatic arts for a, a, a number of years. And, and just because, you know, I'm in that position, it's still really the internal process of a person to come to an understanding that, that it, it is really systemic across the department, right? It's in every area where we are in touch with a, with a student. And it is, it's a struggle. It takes time. It's difficult. It's a lot of conversation. It's incremental, right? We want things to change tomorrow because that student is only here for that short period of time. And they're, you, I know they're going to leave out without what I think they should have got, right? They, they're going to leave out not having been treated or um, instructed in a way that I think is beneficial to them. And it's hard. It is, it is really hard. Um, I hope that we made some changes, but it's slow and it's incremental. But it took me some time to come to that understanding too. Right, so I can't just say, well, other folks outside of me are not really, you know, getting on board. Um, it took me a little time to understand, and then strategically, how do you make that happen? So I don't know that it was somebody outside of me. Of course, I talked to a lot of my colleagues, you know, across the country to say, these, this is what we're struggling with, right? How have you all worked this out? I see some things are really happening that are wonderful over there. Let's be in conversation, you know, about what the work that you're doing, you know, how we might think about that. How we might think about here, we change the audition process. We change that particular modality. Um, you know, we have the argument that we have those other courses, right? Um, and that that ought to, that ought to do the trick. Well, let's make them required. No, 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 no. We're nibbling around the around the edges, right? We're still privileging, you know, areas that don't need to be privileged anymore. So it's it's just work. It's just being in community, in conversation, in collaboration, um, and continuing continuing to push. I just believe in the goodness of people. I believe in the decency of of people. And so I'm always optimistic that we can that we can turn a corner and we are here at the end of the day for the students. Otherwise we don't, you know, I could write my plays anywhere. Um, there's a nice little cafe on Washington Street, New London. I could live, put a cot up in the back. I could just live there and write my plays. But we are here in these institutions because we we want to be responsible to the making of these of these theater artists, you know, before they go out into the world. Thank you, Michael and Dr. Mock for this conversation. We are so grateful to the both of you for your wisdom and your time. We appreciate what you've shared with us today, particularly the insights you provided about how the macrocosm of society shows up and does not show up in the production and design of theater. We value you sharing so openly about how you integrate your own identities and lives to inform how you think about and approach your own work within theater. And it has been powerful to learn from you about the way in which race formation begins and unfolds in and through theater. We recognize that given your lens and the traditional Western canon in theater, 
The both of you are always working in the constant friction of disrupting that canon and creating space for what else is possible in and through theater. It has been so valuable to hear how you make intentional efforts to prepare the next generation of theater scholars and artists. And you have also raised important points about the hiring of faculty in theater and how hiring one faculty of color isn't sufficient. The consequences of not hiring more faculty of color is directly tied with the outcomes for the field, what theater gets produced and how it gets produced. Thank you so much for your work, your craft, and for your contributions to your students and the broader world. We really appreciate both of you. Thank you so much. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office for Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.